you think that you published a book Said it's not a big deal, all you need is a hook Then you lie about your age so you don't seem dated A call from your agent and boom, you made it So sorry we think you're a liar, we're older and wiser Hello everyone and welcome to Older and Wiser A podcast about all things publishing in Younger I'm your host, Marissa Cantor, and with me, as always, is Kelsey Rodkey. Hey, Kelsey. Hi, Marissa. How are you doing? I am doing great because today we have our very first guest on Older and Wiser. We do, and our guest happens to be someone who wasn't necessarily invited but just told to show up, and that person is Rachel Lynn Solomon. She's a best-selling author of the romance and YA novel The X Talk, Today, Tonight, Tomorrow, and the forthcoming We Can't Keep Meeting Like This. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Kelsey. Thank you both so much for having me. I am honored to be here, even though it was not a request. It was a declaration. And unfortunately, it's not Topless Tuesday, but I'm excited regardless. Thank you. Rachel, how are you doing? How is author life? How has the first three months of your adult debut been? (laughs) It's been really exciting. It feels like kind of debuting again in a different category. Just a lot of the details have been been different. Interacting with fans has been really different. Um, Just the way that people respond in particular to the steamy scenes in the book. Definitely don't get those kinds of messages with my YA novels. So there are steamy scenes in your YA novels. Yeah, but not, you know, not graphic. So what are you reading? You know, we know what you're you're working on, which you can talk about if you'd like, but uh, what are you reading lately? I am reading an audiobook. That's how I read most of my books these days. I'm listening to They Never Learn by Lane Fargo, and it is a feminist revenge thriller about a college professor who is also a serial killer, and she exclusively murders terrible men, and it's really fantastic so far. I'm loving it. I'm so excited to read that one. (laughs) It's just a great like revenge fantasy kind of. It really is, though. I I read the first two chapters and I had to put it down for life reasons. And I think about it all the time because it was such a powerful opening chapter. On the flip side, I'm reading The Rehearsals by Annette Christie, which is not a rom-com. It's a time loop book about a couple that has to relive their rehearsal dinner before their wedding over and over again. And it doesn't have, to my knowledge, murder, (laughs) but it does have (laughs) Annette Christie's wonderful prose. And so I'm loving that so far. What about you, Marissa? So I just finished Spoiler Alert by Olivia Dade. And it is so good. I mean, it's right up my alley in terms of being another type of what I like about you, mistaken identity romance. But it is between an actor who is on this sort of Game of Thrones-esque show, like a super popular fantasy series. And he is super salty about the direction of the show. So he writes fan fiction and the romance is with another fan fiction writer who he then goes on to date in real life. But he realizes very quickly that she is this writer and they'd been communicating online for years and had developed a friendship, but she doesn't know it's him. I had no clue that it was so similar to (laughs) what I like about you in that sense. 
Yeah, it was it was so good. That is such a fun book, though. And I love the way it incorporates multimedia, like the scripts that the actor has little bits of the scripts from movies that that actor has done just like truly terrible movies. I just have a thing for terrible movies and terrible TV in general. And I, I you can tell that the author just had so much fun writing those. Sadly, I don't know if any of these books are things that Empirical would publish, but I also just have no idea how big Empirical is, if it is supposed to rival a HarperCollins or a Penguin Random House, or really anything about it, especially at this point in the show. Yeah, they certainly act like this. Um, We get a Knopf drop in this episode. I think this was when I learned how to pronounce Knopf, fun fact. (laughs) But as far as we can tell... Only two people work at this company, and that's Kelsey and Diana. And like nothing else at this point exists in terms of production or design or sales team. Or you have the head of marketing and one editor. So that's all you need. One person edits the book, and the other markets it. But Kelsey's a junior editor, so there's not even a, an editor. I look forward to learning more. Maybe there's a publisher somewhere. Yeah, I wonder who could that be. Still invisible. Yeah, I was surprised that Charles doesn't show up this early in the show. I'm not sure when he shows up, but not in these first two episodes. I think it's the next one. Oh, okay. Yeah, I like don't remember his entrance at all. I feel like this show, for me, everything blurs together into one very long season. I have stretches where I will watch five, seven episodes at a time, and then I'll forget about the show for several months. And then I'll come back to it and I'll have to rewatch some of them, but nothing will make sense just because that's what the show is so good at is, <laughs> is nothing being logical and it's tough to catch up. But like, it's also just so it's so addictive and it really does all blur together. I feel like we have a lot to dive into. So are we ready to just intro the episode and yeah, start talking all the things? Let's do it. Today, we are going to be discussing Younger Season 1, Episode 2, Liza Sows Her Oats. In this episode, as she settles into her new 26-year-old life, Liza is tasked with marketing an older writer to a younger audience. Although she has a perfect date with Josh, she tries to convince herself to aim for someone more age-appropriate. Yeah, that's what happens. (laughs) (laughs) That's what happens. I thought, again, this was another super fast episode. That's the thing that has perhaps struck me the most and that we talked about in the first episode is the pacing. Like, I feel like as soon as I'm like, I'm like, yes, let's go. And then it just cuts and it's over. (laughs) It's like a blink of an eye. It is really shocking. Yeah. How quickly it moves. I think that's something that Darren Starr did also in Emily in Paris. It doesn't feel like anything is unnecessary. You know, they they don't linger on moments that don't need it. So the pacing is very tight. I think that's probably also part of why it feels like things move so fast on this show, like publishing itself. Right. Because the pacing is so tight. You still get the full uh, episodic arc with each episode. It's never rushed. It's just like a perfect pace, I think. Right. And, you know, Emily in Paris was nominated for Golden Globe. So who are we to question (laughs) the artist that is Darren Starr? Yeah, true. He's got his fingers on the pulse. Yeah, it's funny. Like as much as we really dig into all the publishing issues, I feel like every episode we're going to be like, but like structurally and like storytelling wise, this show really works. And like, obviously, it has gone on for six seasons. They're filming the seventh now. So the formula has been perfected. Yes. 
us publishing people just kind of like shake our fists at the sky. Yeah, like the content, not great. Execution, flawless. <laughs> Let's dive into the development of all of the key relationships in this episode. Yeah. Starting, where do you want to start, Kelsey? We start with Kelsey. Yeah, <laughs> let's start with Kelsey. She's kind of um, instantly Liza's best friend. Yes. Which I, I said in the first episode, but like Kelsey walks in and the first person she goes to is Liza. And it's a, it's an easy friendship, but it's also like, what is that based on? Just the fact that they're young, that they both are pretty. <laughs> they're not just young. They need to talk about being young all the time. And God yes. forbid any of them like demonstrate any old kind of behavior. Yeah. And I have to say, considering they're supposed to be millennials, I don't know millennials that talk about how young they are. They just say how old they are. Right. Like I'm a grandma. (laughs) That is such a sign that this show is not written by anyone who is a millennial. Obviously not Darren Starr, but I'd be so curious what the makeup of the writing staff is like, because that is such a good point that I feel like a very millennial thing to do is to talk about how ancient you feel and just, uh, I'm old because... I own a CD still or something (laughs) like that. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's very, they they don't see what's right there in front of them, I feel like, with the writing. But yeah, so Fast Friends, Liza and Kelsey. I don't feel like there was any development with the relationship because in the the first episode, Kelsey just like instantly adopts Liza. Right. And Kelsey has another friend, you know, Lauren, it just makes you wonder, was she desperate for a work friend? You know, like, oh, yay, there's another 26 year old here who's hot like I am. Is that what she was seeking? Because she does not seem like someone who is lacking friends. And she's in a relationship with someone who is, you know, not the best. But yeah, you have to wonder why she glommed on to Liza so quickly. Yeah, so quickly. And like just speaking from my own experience, like office culture, it does not move that quickly. There were a lot of um, 20-something coordinators in my office back when we went to an office. And it was great. They did become part of my social circle. But I think me and one of my really good friends now spent two months sitting next to each other before we asked each other if we wanted to go get lunch together. That seems reasonable. You have to build up. <laughs> Especially in the millennial like age. <laughs> exactly. We did not instantly do Krav Maga together. And get naked in front of each other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but again, getting naked in front of each other. We we have Lauren in this episode. Uh, this isn't Liza's first introduction to Lauren, but it's a very uh, impressionable one. <laughs> She gets to uh, have lunch with her and Kelsey, which is another thing that we can talk about. An hour-long lunch in the middle of the day (laughs) just to go hang out with Kelsey and Lauren. Doesn't feel like something an assistant would be able to do. Yeah, I mean, I'll push back on that a little bit because we, like, at least where I'm at, I feel like a lot of depictions of media jobs are this super, like, high-pressure workaholic mindset, which... I feel like is an experience, but that just like hasn't been my experience. And I don't know if I've just like lucked out in that respect and I've had good bosses who weren't like terrible humans. But that scene with Liza and Kelsey and Lauren at lunch. So they do a lot of their shooting for because they actually do shoot the show in New York City. 
And all of the publishing scenes happen around Bryant Park, which is right where my office was. So I actually got like so sad um, watching them eat lunch together in Bryant Park because that was an experience I used to have. Is it one that included Topless Tuesday? Yeah. It did not include Topless Tuesday. I just love the assumption. I had never heard about that until this show. But the assumption that this is just something that happens that like, of course, all millennials know about this. And it's just time for her to, you know, take off her shirt and take a photo and put it online. Yeah, I hadn't heard of this either, to be honest. I think that Lauren created it. And with how she starts to trend, I think that that seems accurate. Yeah, but like, what is it with these like media centered shows and just like girls taking their tops off in public? Because that happened in the bold type too. Where they all like took their shirts off and like ran through Central Park. So I think that it's supposed to be empowering as like a women reclaiming their sexuality kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And it's not. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that it is because it's just so odd. <laughs> it. I think it's because it doesn't have the, the backing to it. There's There's nothing holding it up. It has no legs. It's just I'm going to take my top off. Right, right. You're right. There's no clear reasoning or logic behind it. Like if they're doing it to make some kind of statement, that statement is absent from this episode. Topless Tuesday and and Free the Nipple are not the same movement. Right, like if we're related in some way to breastfeeding, which I feel like is the the main way that like people talk about topless women, I think, you Mm -hmm. know, that might be a way to make it feel at least like it had some legs but they just needed something fun for Joyce Carol Oates we'll get into all things Joyce in a moment but to quickly wrap up this section I mean I think that Kelsey and Lauren are the highlights that scene at the beginning with Maggie where it's like this giant cork board of Liza's 26 year old life is so hilarious to me and just like all of the things that make one 26 (laughs) And it, it it still feels so dated, like Liza lost her virginity in her parents' basement while watching The Notebook. Well, she's she's supposed to be 26 in 2015. Yeah, that doesn't quite track. So in real time, she's your age, Rachel, right? That's math. Yeah, I think I actually noticed that when watching too, because her grad year was the same as mine, her, her, her fake grad year. Did The Notebook feel right here? <laughs> well, I've never seen The Notebook, but I... Th- think that it came out when I was younger haha uh-huh, then <laughs> I think it's like 2004 okay yeah so I would have been like 14, 14. <laughs> I don't know what Liza was doing in her in her early teens but you know in her early fake teens she was yeah. getting it done which like good for her no shame there I am just questioning why it was during the notebook that it's a is romantic all. <laughs> movie I don't think anyone I knew talked about the notebook except in terms of making fun of it. I like that also she had that information because she's known Kelsey for one day and she knows that Kelsey will ask her that. And Kelsey will. So then we just have Liza and Josh and they get a little bit, they get some movement I think in this episode. You know, Josh is great again and Liza has that little moment of deciding she's going to be a grown up and go out on a date with boring Richard and it makes her realize that no she doesn't want boring Richard she wants Josh which is kind of like a nice affirmation that's her her deciding to just dive in to this relationship yeah well they're neighbors now in the berg 
in the burg. I think that the Josh and Liza relationship is sweet, honestly. Like, they have good chemistry and good banter. I mean, I'm definitely, I haven't finished the show. Like, I just started season six recently, but I'm very much on Team Josh and have been throughout the whole show. Yeah, um, I wrote in my notes for this episode that their chemistry is so good. Like, why was I ever even Team Charles for a second? Because I definitely did swing that way the first time around. And I just was younger and not as wise. Exactly. Yeah, I just let my Peter Herman feelings just cloud my judgment (laughs) about how problematic their entire dynamic is for a very long time. Can't wait to get into that. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Do we want to dive into publishing? Yeah, let's talk about Joyce. Oh my God. So I have to say I've never read a Joyce Carol Oates book and I don't really know anything about her except for the minor Twitter controversy about the infected photo of her foot last year (laughs) that I unfortunately clicked on and I did immediately regret. But so when they mentioned Joyce Carol Oates, my first thought was, oh, the foot lady. <laughs> yeah, I just recognized the name as a name I was supposed to recognize. And I, I couldn't remember until before this, Marissa was like, the foot. <laughs> and she's also just has like a messy history of just saying problematic things and like responding in problematic ways. I think I had heard that too. Yeah. Before the foot. <laughs> We <laughs> there are two there are two eras. There's pre and post foot. We're in a post foot America. She got a lot of heat for being I remember discussing this in one of my creative writing seminars in college where my professor was a woman of color and the topic of who has the right to tell what stories and, you know, like own voices started to become more of a thing and like there was a whole thing where Joyce Carol Oates really pushed back against that idea and like we should all be able to write whatever we want censorship like that was okay that does sound familiar yeah okay so like there's the foot and there's anti-own voices and she just is featured so prominently in this episode it's hard to because I was like do we really have to talk about Joyce but like you can't escape it The episode's literally called Liza Sows Her Oats, so. Yeah, so I think we're supposed to make the assumption that Empirical has been publishing Joyce Carol Oats for, you know, who knows how long, and she has a book about to come out, but again, the timeline is so wonky that there's no telling how much time passes between the beginning of the episode and the end. It seems like it could be a week. Okay, so about that. We have to discuss how her book is apparently not coming out on a Tuesday until Liza, the genius she is, suggests that they should release it on Tuesday. (laughs) So like what day was it supposed to come out? This was the defining moment for me watching the show when I was like, oh, these writers didn't even try. I don't know what you're talking about, Marissa. Liza invented Tuesdays being released today. <laughs> yeah, it and it operates on the assumption that no book has ever been released on a Tuesday. And again, no. it does raise the question, what day were they coming out before? And again, how much time between Liza's su- suggestion and when the book was meant to come out? Like, how are they changing a release date so close to that date? I think that they say at the beginning of the episode that it's releasing next week. Oh, my God. So it's <laughs> days because it starts on a Tuesday. 
because Lauren takes her top off in the park. Right. <laughs> for Double okay. Tuesday. So it starts on a Tuesday and then they're taking the photos, I would assume, probably like Monday to post the next day because Liza then posts it, forgets the hashtag. So it's like a week, I think, is the time frame, which uh, begs me to ask you this, Rachel. If your publisher came to you a week before your book is supposed to be released and said, sorry, we're changing the release date. (laughs) How do you feel? I mean, it's just, I would be perplexed. It's just not something that's done. I have had release dates changed before, but the idea of it not, of a major major publisher putting out a book not on a Tuesday just doesn't really happen. And also the show makes you think that they have had no other marketing plans for the book up until this point. They're like, it's a week away. We need to figure out how to market Joyce Carol Oates to millennials. Liza, go. And then they take her advice, this assistant who just started and says, we need to do Topless Tuesday. And they're like, hmm, okay. But also, why are they even trying to market Joyce Carol Oates to millennials? That part is also not clear to me. Joyce Carol Oates has been around the block. She has an audience. She's going to sell books to that audience. What is the point of entry here? That's such a good question. Yeah, you would assume that all of these fans are waiting for her next book, that she's getting major media coverage or not, because again, Diana makes it seem like there's... (laughs) There have been no marketing plans. And then she just calls up Joyce Carol Oates' agent, ostensibly, to tell her about Topless Tuesday, which I would love to to hear Joyce Carol Oates' reaction to this. I wonder if she did react to this episode, actually. My thing, too, is this whole Topless Tuesday thing. You could have just called it Topless Thursday and problem (laughs) solved. (laughs) That, too. I wonder why they're trying to market to millennials and if, like, empirical as its own entity do they cater to millennials because then they have the millennial imprint later on in the show we still know nothing about empirical like do they publish jane austen or was she just public domain but they were apparently you know releasing her as an ebook in the previous episode one could assume that if they publish jane austen if they publish joyce carol oates that they are a big publisher i think marissa said pride and prejudice is public domain right Yeah, we had a whole public domain conversation about why they would put so much resources into republishing a public domain. Yeah, essentially, we just, like you said, Rachel, we know nothing about Empirical. All the books that they end up acquiring (laughs) over all six seasons, you still don't know. (laughs) They also acquire like an astonishing number of books by white men that I'm sure you will continue to discuss. And this was just the first one that they start talking about is the the Swedish book. But one thing I want one other thing I want to say about Joyce Carol Oates before we move on is the photo that the empirical marketing department takes of all those topless women with the show your oats banner around their breasts. When Liza later posts that photo to Twitter, it is the lowest quality, worst photo I have ever seen. You could tell me that had been taken with like a, you know, 2005 flip phone and I would have believed you. They had all of that equipment in that like photo studio and there's the picture they pick is Rachel, she's only 26. (laughs) She doesn't know how to do the internet. (laughs) Yeah. High res images. What are those? Hashtags. (laughs) Which is so funny to me because the hashtags to me also just date the show so much because like 
that's just not a thing that we do anymore. <laughs> well, and in 2015, I don't think that it was such a hashtags were this groundbreaking thing, but they are treated in this show as revolutionary. You would think that Diana, as the head of marketing, is like well aware of Twitter and hashtags, but she acts like it is so beyond her. Yeah, when Kelsey's like, Liza, you forgot the hashtags. <laughs> like, campaign ruined. I'm honestly surprised they didn't manage to have Liza ask what a hashtag is and then be like, oh, the pound sign? So, Rachel, you mentioned the Swedish book, and that is actually where I want to go next because this was another subplot that was a bit baffling to me in terms of the logistics of what is happening and in terms of, like, how foreign deals work. Right. So the way that we're meant to understand it is this that Hilary Duff is reading did really well in Sweden and she's reading a translated version, which is confusing because like who translated it? And you would think that if it were translated, it would have been published. Google Translate. I guess that's why the translation wasn't very good, which she later says that some of the yeah. some of the writing was lost in translation. But I was so perplexed. That's my assumption is that she or someone else just put it into like a translator and then printed out all thousand of those pages. When she slams that printed manuscript on Liza's desk and apparently has it for no reason because she has it on her iPad, her Kindle, her computer. What was the point of printing that out besides to, to I guess show that it's long yeah Marissa what were your thoughts on it I'm just a little bit baffled by because like you said my big question was like so it's translated already and who did that but foreign acquisitions is not my area of expertise but from my understanding it would just be pitched at a festival and then the rights would be acquired there so I have never known of an experience like this where all of these publishers are fighting outside of a major foreign festival. Right. And like there are definitely foreign sales that take place outside of festivals. But for this book, which they tell us is really big in Sweden, like that he's the next Stieg Larsson, wouldn't those rights have all likely already sold? <laughs> right. So my, and I believe that this is giving the writers way too much credit, but like the only way I could make this make sense in my brain is that maybe it had already published in the UK or like another English speaking territory. And that's how the translation exists because otherwise it just wouldn't. Yeah. And I would also think that because the like US and just the English speaking market is so big that that would be one of the first foreign deals you would go after if you're publishing this book in Sweden. Yeah, it just... It was something. Over the course of this podcast, I would love to find someone who works in sub rights or foreign rights to come on and ask these questions. And I will bring back... I mean, there's other moments, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Well, there's the whole... Bologna, is there... Is it a Bologna episode or a Frankfurt episode? I think that's what it is. Oh, yeah. I think there's a festival episode, yeah. Again, when does that occur? Who knows? It's all... <laughs> a meaningless blob to me. But yeah, I also, outside of the logistics of it, just also had no understanding of what this book is about it's and just, what made it so special. It's so beautiful. And it's just about the universal human experience. But at the same time, it's so personal, is I think how Kelsey describes it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, 
another book by a white guy. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, okay, sounds like literary fiction, I guess. It's too long. You can't <laughs> sum it up. We're over it. Which, again, like, how is that something that Kelsey wants to acquire? And then she goes to start the millennial imprint. Kelsey's taste as an editor is very questionable. Because, again, Terrible. she's giving a platform to a lot of mediocre white men. And you would think because she seems to put – she has a lot of pride in herself for being a young woman in publishing and for advancing as quickly as she has, the kinds of voices that she chooses to amplify – are really surprising. Yeah. And to me, like just an overall note for the series, we mentioned in the last episode, and there's no point in harping on too much, but the lack of diversity is just so glaring on the rewatch in terms of who they publish, in terms of just the cast and like who works at Empirical themselves. Yeah, it's a very white New York. So that brings us to the CP segment of the episode where, I mean, I feel like we're always sort of assessing this from a critical eye, but this is sort of like the what would we change about the episode portion if we were writers or had any say at all. Do either of you want to go first? Because I have mine ready to go. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Go for it. Hear me out. During this episode, Liza's um, 40-something-year-old friend, Michelle, and her husband run into Liza when she's with Josh. And they talk about how they want to set her up with a recently divorced man. Now, instead of Michelle setting Liza up with that man, Richard, what if she had set her up with Charles? But Liza gets cold feet. They don't get past texting. And then uh, she stands him up. And then next episode or whenever, he walks in the room and she knows that she stood that guy up. It creates tension for their future work and romantic relationship. Um, It heightens the stakes. It adds an extra layer of surprise when he walks in the room and everyone realizes that she stood him up and he's her boss. And then he thinks she's 26, but he thinks the girl on the phone is 40. (laughs) I just think it could have been very fun. Oh, I love that. I wish they had gone that route. That was so good. I feel like anything I say now is going to pale in comparison. That really does feel like a missed opportunity. It does. Because maybe later down along the line, there's one of her friends that wants to set her up with Charles. Yeah, I feel like that would have been a good way to introduce him. Kind of like how on Grey's Anatomy, you are interested introduced to uh the main love interest Derek Shepard by uh (laughs) the intro scene where Meredith wakes up after a one night stand and then she goes into work and oh he's her boss or like Pretty Little Liars too oh I didn't watch that one Marissa do you watch Pretty Little Liars I watched the first season forever ago she like hooks up with a guy and then it's her teacher got it yeah I I always like that as a a nice little twist yeah that would have been fun any other critiques For me, honestly, I was just going to say call it Topless Thursday, which I already made that joke before, but I'm very serious about that. Like you could have solved so many, you could have saved me so much frustration if you just picked another day of the week. Yeah, I feel like overall the episode's pretty solid. There wasn't as much problematic material as the first episode. Rachel, anything you wanted to change or tweak? Yeah, I think all of my critiques have already been covered in terms of just release dates and marketing and making that make sense. Yeah. 
they never will make it make sense. And the bar is very low. Next up, we all have to name our six-figure advance recipient for this episode. This is the equivalent of an MVP. This is the standout character who deserves a six-figure advance because (laughs) that's what everybody gets in publishing. I want to say Kelsey because she's working hard to read that book so that they can aggressively move to acquire it, you know, regardless of all the inaccuracies <laughs> with regard in terms of foreign rights. She's hustling and I respect that. I think I'm going to give it to her. I think I have to agree that it's Kelsey in this episode. I mean, just to talk through my logic for a second, like I just cannot forgive Liza for Topless Tuesday. I love Josh every time I see him, but there wasn't enough of him in this episode to warrant a Josh six-figure advance. Yeah, I, I agree that Kelsey is a very ambitious junior editor. She is right on the pulse of whatever big deals could be on the horizon, and she's on it, you know? Her shitty boyfriend is trying to get it, and she cannot be distracted. She cannot be deterred. She will read this book and then lose it. Well, I mean, I I agree with you guys for all of your reasoning, but I'm giving it to Lauren because she makes me laugh. (laughs) She inspired Liza to get out of her comfort zone and get a little more creative. And I just like Lauren because I think even though she might not have solid reasoning, she knows the brand she works for and she gets stuff done. And I can appreciate that. I know. And I almost feel like Lauren is the most well-defined secondary character up to this point. Like she has such a clear identity. Like you know who, you know what you're going to get from her right off the bat. And I love that about her so much. So, Rachel, every episode we are closing with a podcast recommendation. It can be reading, writing, publishing related, doesn't necessarily have to be. And we would love if you could give any, if you want to shout out any podcasts that you are listening to and enjoying. Sure. Um, my all-time favorite podcast that I'm never never shy to shout out, shout out is The Bechtel Cast. And it is a feminist movie podcast hosted by two comedians. And it is hilarious, and they do a really great job being inclusive and making their feminism intersectional, and I just love it. Cool. I started listening recently at your recommendation. Oh, yay. <laughs> so that that wraps up season one, episode two. Um, I always love recording the second episode because it just – it feels like we're real now. Like we're not, oh, we're going to start a podcast. And then, <laughs> Hooray. Like we – we have content. Um, thank you so much for being here, Rachel. This was a ton of fun. I love this. Thank you for forcing me to do it. We will probably force you to do it again in the future. So <laughs> can't wait. <laughs> so yeah, where where can we find you outside of Older and Wiser? Yeah, uh, I am on Twitter and Instagram at r l y n n underscore Solomon and at rachelsolomonbooks.com. You can find the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at OlderWiserCast. I'm at Marissa Cantor on Twitter and Instagram. And I'm at Kelsey Rodkey on Twitter and at K on Instagram. 
As always, feel free to check out the other Paginated Media podcasts. We have new episodes of The Outfit Repeaters, an unofficial Lizzie McGuire recap podcast every Tuesday and crowning around on Thursday. Be sure to tune in next week when Kelsey and I unpack Younger Season 1, Episode 3, IRL. We'll see you next Wednesday to continue our discussion of all things publishing on Younger. The end.